You're listening to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to. Like the show? Become a patron at patreon.com forward slash nygbc. You should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. getting this book on UFOs. Did you know they're real? But there's a huge comic conspiracy to cover it up. Oh, that's just a paranoid fantasy. I want to be a book that you can pick me up, flip through my pages, make sure nobody drew wieners in me. And welcome to the patron-only sort of bonus episode of the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to, because we love to reap but hate to sow. My name is Kevin, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Benedict, who is fated to betray me thrice before the cockatrice crows. Benedict! I realize I forgot to write down another question from when we recorded mm. yesterday. So, who's another journalist you're a fan of? Uh, I already gave you three, so <laughs> yeah, I don't know you, you, you can be pretentious again and yeah, give another no, one. No, it's okay. It's all right. I don't want to. I don't want to over mm-hmm. overburden the listeners. Um, do cockatrices crow? Is my question. I don't know. It's some sort of mythical bird creature. Yeah, but it's not a real animal. I don't think it really matters whether it it grows or not. It does matter. It does matter. I want you to explain the joke (laughs) and the the physical anatomy of a cockatrice. Thank you. Benedict, it's a nonsense Um, sentence. It doesn't matter. That's true. (laughs) I I like Dave Weigel. Let's go with Dave Weigel. Ah, Dave Weigel. God, you know what? What was it? Probably a couple months ago now, everyone was shitting on Dave Weigel (laughs) for being older than him. (laughs) <laughs> but all looking so much better than he does. Yeah. Oh, I mean, sure. Dude needs to take a weekend at a health spa and shave that ugly mustache. No, nah, I like the mustache. No, 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 does not work on. It does not work on his face. <laughs> not, not a good look is all I'll say. No, perhaps not. I also like. Um, who was I going to say? Do, 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 do. One sec. Uh, Ryan Grimm. We have nothing but time. Right, Ra- Ryan Grimm. I also like. Awesome. awesome. What about you? Like, do it. You give me another one. Uh, Zach Patrizzo. Okay. He's a young buck, a young kid out there on the beat. I think he uh, he was with Salon for a short. He had a brief, a brief run with Salon, like literally just a couple weeks. I think I don't know exactly what happened there, but he's media matters, and then he was Salon, and now I think he's at the Daily Beast with Will Sommer. Mm. Uh, but he covers all that sort of wacky right wing stuff. That uh, I love so much. Also, uh, Ely Mistal at the the Nation, fantastic writer, lovely stuff. Now, do I sound as pretentious as you? Does it all work out? Yeah, sure. I'm going to say Hannah Murphy at the FT as well. God, you have to have one more than me. Yep. Anyways, Benedict, let's get this show on the road. Uh, you probably know listeners. Well, they're not all patrons this time. I keep forgetting that they're not all patrons. We're talking about this time. No, this is a patron-only <laughs> episode, and we're recording as if it's a patron-only yep, episode. Yeah, we should. We should. But this is a show where we go deep, 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 blah, blah, blah. Hot takes. Don't need them because it's a patron-only. Benedict. That's right. This is me speed reading through our outline housekeeping. Rate and review on iTunes. Follow us on social medias. Um, and uh, updates. I have two updates. So this is going out all over the place. Uh, several weeks ago, I brought up how proud I was of, I don't know if proud is the right word, of the binging with Babish cookware line. (laughs) 
based impressed, off. Impressed, I made, think. Not proud. Yes, you didn't impressed. make it. No, no. But I was very impressed with the fact that he was just selling decent quality cookware at a, a normal price. Like, if you would just go buy it, you know, if you if you weren't getting fucking Rachel Ray brand or whatever, you would just get it for this price. It is just a normal, good, decent price. You're getting something good for your money. And I was very happy about that because, um, you know, knowing what he's done with his YouTube channel and everything, I've always liked the guy, and I thought there's a lot of integrity in doing that. And I broke down, and I bought a piece of Binging with Babish cookware, and I love it. I bought a Babish wok. It is a carbon steel wok to replace the one I had basically rusted through um, because I love cooking with a wok. And it is it is exactly that. It is solid. It is It is, has the heft that you want from a piece of cookware. And for the price I paid for it, I am incredibly happy with how what with the quality of what I got. It is it is absolutely outstanding and it's just what I wanted. It doesn't have any bullshit going on with it. It's just a walk that works and is high quality. I cannot explain to you how difficult that is to find for someone like me who cooks the way that I do and as much as I do. Right. I'm very happy with it. So this Good. is my official endorsement of the Babish cookware line. Um Find it on Amazon. I don't know. Whatever you want to do. Anyways, another update, Benedict. Not so much an update as a connection between mm. things we have talked about in the past. Of course, from time to time on the show, uh, Alex Jones comes up. As does, of course, our old nemesis Glenn Beck's outlet, Blaze TV, which is his, or sure. you know, the Blaze, Blaze TV. It's all under the same umbrella. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually him and... Um, I don't remember who the other shitbag is who was also a part owner of it, uh, but one of those other radio hosts that, that doesn't deserve to be in the light of day. Um, but Alex Jones recently had a crossover. He was on Louder with Crowder, which is on the Blaze TV network, as well as appearing on another show that is on Blaze TV that I didn't bother to learn the name of because <laughs> who cares, really? But yeah, uh, Blaze, uh, Glenn Beck's network is proudly platforming Alex Jones. Um, to basically just do his regular free speech grifting argument, which is all he ever does, because that's really all he has when he's ta not talking directly to people who already believe all of his conspiracy theories. Um, it's to try and suck people in, and, oh, I'm just really about free speech. And then they start listening, and, you know, some of the dumber ones believe the conspiracies, and a lot more of them drop off. That's his whole grift. But mm -hmm. I did find it sort of strange, given that there is a history of animosity between Alex Jones and Glenn Beck, um, which I know you're unaware of because you don't follow these things. Because like I literally I do. don't care, yeah. I know right. you don't. Uh, but Alex Jones has talked plenty of shit about Glenn Beck throughout his career. Glenn Beck, of course, has used Alex Jones as the, look, there's still people crazier than me, so I'm not really that crazy example. So um, weird that this would come together, but also not all that shocking since they're basically just using the same playbook. Glenn Beck mm -hmm. and Alex Jones. Anyways, Benedict, that's not what we're here for today. What we are here for today is to do another chapter of our book review of None Dare Call It Conspiracy by Gary Allen and Larry Abraham. This is the classic conspiracy theory novel or book. Novel. <laughs> novel it's basically right. a novel. When you look at how much fiction versus nonfiction is in this book, I say you could almost call it a novel. 
Um, but we're doing another chapter of this, and obviously the majority of this book we have done for patrons only, so if you're listening to this on the regular feed and you want to hear the rest of this, you can go become a patron at patreon.com forward slash nygbc. But this is our little sorry for that terrible audio episode we had not too long ago. I really apologize for all that. I'm still mad that it even happened. But Benedict, for those of us, or those listeners, who haven't been with us the entire way throughout this book review, um... What have we seen so far in this book to this point? Uh, a journey, I think, is oh, the we've other been on a journey. It's it's been a journey. definite journey. Um, I think charts. There's been a lot of charts. <laughs> There's been a lot of charts. Um, a lot of red of, string. <laughs> yeah, a lot. Of, well, not. E- I, it's even weirder than that, honestly, because it's just like at least the red string. You're like, okay, that connects with that. That makes sense. Whereas this is just like doing loop de loops and like <laughs> things are like connecting back to themselves, but also going to other things, which then also can. It's very very odd. Um, so essentially, th- what we've seen in this book so far is how wrong I could be about how weird all this is yes because you talked... did not believe going into it that it was this crazy well okay so we've talked a few times about me being not like trusting or like uh, me giving the benefit of the doubt to mm-hmm. things that people like this say yeah right and then you go oh okay yeah if you squint and then they uh-huh. and then like on the next page you squint wide eyes. and they yeah. wide eyes on the next <laughs> big <page>. wide <laughs> eyes yeah exactly um so yeah it's it's just like i'm like oh yeah you know the federal reserve banks maybe do have too much control and then they're like and they use it to kill you and i'm like <laughs> okay no you lost me you lost me that's it so it's a lot of that it's a lot of like starting with a reasonable point or like what's funny is a lot of this book is like a perfectly valid critique of capitalism yes, that yes. then they they use to be like and thus everything is communism and yes. you're like wait how, that's a bait and switch i didn't see coming <laughs> and I we're gonna what? see more of that in this chapter today okay. i promise you cool so i mean there's lots of stuff about like how the rockefellers are secret communists yes. and like the bolsheviks were financed by communists who are also capitalists so they're communists not mm-hmm. capitalists but also capitalists not communists it's very confusing um i don't really have much else to add look it's worth it for the charts alone yes i would say yes definitely go buy a copy at your local capitalist bookstore yeah i don't think they're selling it at communist bookstores Probably but <laughs> If I had to give a basic overview... Honestly, if communism were this fucking organized... (laughs) It would control the world. It would, yeah. But basically what this entire book is and what we've seen up to this point is it is a um, slight rewriting of the Jews control the world conspiracy theory, right? It is... So it's two things. One, it is an outline of what is supposedly the massive communist conspiracy, Mm -hmm. which is the overarching conspiracy that people like Alex Jones and Glenn Beck subscribe to, rather than, you know, like the QAnon meta-conspiracy that I've talked about. I think last week we got into that a little bit when I was talking about my thoughts on it. But this is the other... One of the other meta-conspiracies that a lot of these people subscribe to, and this is really the John Birchian meta-conspiracy, right? Because mm-hmm. that, that's who these people were, were associating with, and that's, I think, who originally published this book. I think it was published uh, through the John Birch Society or somebody associated with them. Um, so uh, what we saw a lot through the early parts of this was, well, a whole lot of people call me crazy, but no, I'm not really crazy, repeated over and over and over again. A whole lot of talking about people mostly from Jewish families, Mm. and denying the fact that your 
basically just repeating Nazi propaganda that was used against them about what happened in World War One and throwing in a couple of non-Jewish people so that you have some plausible deniability when you're going on these rambling conspiracy theories about these people controlling the world. And we get a little bit of the blurring of the lines, like you said, between what is communism that is supposedly behind all of this and what is capitalism. They never seem, at least in my mm. mind, as far as we've gone in this book so far, to find a way to square that circle. Um, but, you know, we're going to keep trying and see what they can throw at us. So this, as we get to, is chapter six. This one is entitled The Rockefellers and the Reds. And Benedict, before we start in this chapter proper, I have to talk to you a little bit about the history, going back to what we talk about a lot, the history of the John Birch Society and the far-right movement in the United States. Counterpoint, no, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, unfortunately, I actually do. And we're just just a brief aside, right? We're just going to talk about one individual, and it's somebody we've talked about already in the past, and that's W. Cleon Skousen, right? That name has come up a bunch for us because he's one of Glenn Beck's favorite writers. Um, He... Glenn Beck pimped multiple of his books when he had his TV show on Fox News, and I'm pretty sure he still pimps them today. The uh, 10,000-year leap or 1,000-year leap, I forget how many thousands of years it is, and uh, the other books that he wrote. Um, The more important books that he wrote, and one of them that Glenn Beck also pushed, was The Naked Communist, Mm -hmm. published in 1958. And The Naked Communist is really the reason why we have None Dare Call It Conspiracy. Like, the, the authors of this book wanted to do that book, except, Benedict, I mean, you have a copy of None Dare Call It Conspiracy. It's barely 100 pages soaking wet. Uh, yep. The Naked Capitalist is like 350, 400 pages. So mm. if they were trying to accomplish something along those lines as far as page length or, or verbosity goes, they mm. failed pretty badly. But The Naked Communist came out in 1958. In 1970... W. Cleon Skousen put out another book entitled The Naked Capitalist. And my theory as to why he put out a book called The Naked Capitalist and why that book is actually more similar to this book, None Dare Call It Conspiracy, which, remember, came out in 1971, is because of the subject of this chapter. Mm. Namely, the Rockefellers. Nelson and David being the two we're mostly going to talk about. If you recall, as we have talked about many times... In 1964, and I've played this audio on the show, right? Mm -hmm. Nelson Rockefeller, who was got booed at the RNC, the governor of New York, went to the RNC and called for a condemnation of radicals of all types, and by name mentioned the John Birch Society, right? So, not surprising that a bunch of Birchers would then hate him. And W. Cleon Skousen, well, he got booed at the convention, right? Yes, oh yeah, yeah. because and I think parts of that is, you know. They started booing before he even said Birchers, right? He, they were booing, I mean, he said, like, the Klan. That was one of the groups he said <laughs> that they should separate from. Um, problematic that they were booing at that point. Yep. But also probably, you know, the Birchers stuff and all that that he was, he was talking about condemning. Um, so, obviously, the Birchers and their friends hate the Rockefellers now. Mm-hmm. So, the Naked Communist, the thrust of it is more, I would say, purist in the sense that it's just the massive communist conspiracy. When you get to the naked capitalist, he is doing what we see in this book, where it is now a blending between there are capitalists and communists, and they are working together, and it's all a conspiracy against you, the Mm, reader. You specifically. 
Yes. And, you know, remember, we, we read um, one of the earlier chapters of this book. He basically had a paragraph where he said, just to paraphrase, now, many people say that this conspiracy is actually one of the Jews or the Catholics or the blacks. But no, 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 it's not that. It's all of those groups working together against mm. you, right? <laughs> was basically the thrust of what he had written early on there. Yeah, so, no, it's it's uh, it, it truly a never more uh, complicated conspiracy. Yeah, so I think by the time you get to 1970, when The Naked Capitalist is published, and 1971, when None Dare Call It Conspiracy is published, you have all these other groups that now they realize, beyond just screaming that it's all commies, they have to wrap in how all these other groups are now part of the conspiracy. And that mm -hmm. includes a number of obvious non-communists, right? Obvious capitalists like Nelson Rockefeller and a number of the other bankers who we've talked <laughs> One about. One of the richest men of all time. Yes, they have to somehow find a way to say, no, 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 these guys are actually all communists. And the way they get around to doing it, and, you know, Rockefeller in particular, because he denounced them by name, the way they get around to doing that is saying, well, actually, communism isn't actually communism. It's just that, well, it is communism, but people like Rockefeller are using it to control you, but because they have all the money and the power, when communism clamps down on you, they'll be above it, and they'll have all the power and all the wealth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So that's how they sort of wrap all this together in this giant ball of bullshit. Okay, is... let's do it. I'm excited. So this chapter begins, quote, The most important American of those, quote, different personages who run the world from behind the scenes are the Rockefellers. Mm -hmm. The Rockefeller clan reportedly has worked with the Rothschilds and their agents since the 1880s when the original John D. arranged to get a rebate on every barrel of oil he and his competitors shipped over Kuhn, Loeb & Company, controlled Pennsylvania and Baltimore and Ohio railroads. It has been a profitable partnership ever since, although there appear to have been areas in which the two financial dynasties competed. So we've read plenty about Kuhn Loeb. We've read about the Rothschilds before, right? We had that one pretty despicable chapter a few ago that was basically just repeating all the Nazi smears that came out of World War I against the Jews. And obviously they were talking about the Rothschilds and Kuhn Loeb and all that kind of stuff back then. But going back to that, you know, to tie it to that, he says in the next paragraph that that relationship ties back to the Bolshevik Revolution, right? Yeah, I mean, everything ties back to the Bolshevik Revolution. Right. Everything was either funding the Bolshevik Revolution or uh, manipu manipulated by the Bolshevik Revolution or inspired by the Bolshevik Revolution. Everything is communist. Well, and when you hear a lot of white supremacists talk and they're trying to cover up the fact that they're openly white supremacists and anti-Semites, they'll, like, replace Jewish with Bolshevik. Oh, that's a, a classic. That is classic a classic. Classic anti-Semitism, right? Classic. Yeah. And I'm not just saying that willy-nilly. Like, based on what we've read in the book so far, that's, you know, that's basically what's going on. And I'll also go back and say, I think I've talked before about how uh, a lot of white supremacists, like I, I referenced uh, them, the John Ronson book, a lot mm -hmm. of the white supremacists he was talking to, they would say, well, there are people who aren't Jewish by birth, but because they're part of this conspiracy, they're Jewish, right? Right. So I, that exists. That, that mindset exists here. So he continues, skipping down. The Federal Reserve CFR insiders began pushing to open up communist Russia to U.S. traders soon after the revolution. However, at that time, public opinion ran so high against the Bolsheviks because of their barbarism that it was official U.S. government policy not to deal with the outlaw government. The U.S. did not officially recognize the Bolsheviks until 1933. 
In the meantime, the Soviet economy was in shambles, and the people were starving to death. Mm. Communism would have collapsed had it not been aided by the insiders. The Bolsheviks were originally saved from collapse by Herbert Hoover, parenthetical, CFR, who raised money to buy food. Fucking CFR. I forgot about the CFR. <laughs> we keep, that's the fun thing about this book, is as we've gone through, we have just kept adding new, you know, little insider words. I'm, I don't mean insiders in the sense, but I mean in, insiders in the sense that these are for John Burt Society insiders. All mm. these little tags mean something. I think we started out with insiders, and then we got federal reservists, and then we got CFR, and we keep adding all this stuff on and on and on. Ah, so much fun. Uh, continuing. Who raised money to buy food which was appropriated by Lenin and his gangsters. They used it as a tool to subdue starving peasants who had been resisting their newly imposed slave masters. This is, uh, That's not- a hell of a way to describe <laughs> giving yeah. food to starving people. Yep. I mean, uh, we've talked before about how the white army was massively funded by all these capitalists. Yeah, and got their ass handed to them by Trotsky. Yeah. Um, The other thing is, as as always, when people say, look at these starving communist countries, you have to look at why that is. And it's the answer is other countries. Part of that paragraph. Other countries don't trade with them. Yes, exactly. It was official government policy, not, and it wasn't just U.S. policy. It was policy with a lot of other countries in Europe. It's the same same with Cuba now and Venezuela. Like other countries are like, no, figure it out yourself. Then, and then they're like, fuck, we don't grow our own food. What are we gonna do? Like that. So that I mean that, it's very annoying. When Russia, are, not known for having the most verdant fields, I would no, say. No, that's true. They have a lot of wheat, though. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think I think that's more like Ukraine. You know? Yeah, that's true. Although I think Russia might tell you that's actually Russia. Yeah, <laughs> so that's also depends true. on who you're talking to. <laughs> but he goes on, right? And he's so what he introduced there is what he's going to talk about for a little bit here, which is the interaction of these obvious capitalists and obvious non communists, yep. like the Rockefellers in the Soviet Union, because. Uh, money don't care. Uh, capitalists don't care where their money comes from. They just want nope, to make more of it. True. And they see an opportunity to invest. If it's a communist country, they don't give a shit. They're going to they're gonna try and make money off it, which is what they did. He says, after the Bolshevik Revolution, Standard of New Jersey, referring to Standard Oil, obviously, right, bought 50% of the Nobel's huge Caucasus oil fields. And in 1927, Standard Oil of New York built a refinery in Russia, thereby helping the Bolsheviks put their economy back on its feet. And presumably take their oil. Yeah. He skips down and says, quote, we or I skip down, and he says, quote, We have been unable to find out if Standard Oil was even theoretically expropriated by the communists. Sutton, right, Sutton's a guy he's, he's uh, referencing here. Only the Danish Telegraph concessions, the Japanese fishing coal and oil concessions, and the Standard Oil lease remained after 1935. So there were other concessions that yep. were made to outside forces that had yep. abilities to bring in things that the russians wanted yep that's what you're saying like mm-hmm. this all boils down to uh russia after a violent revolution that was fought didn't have the economic power that it needed so to it sustain itself out. so it sought help from other countries help yeah. from other countries and private institutions to get it but this obviously to our writers must be a conspiracy mm, always everything's a conspiracy The Rockefeller's Chase National Bank also was involved in selling Bolshevik bonds in the United States in 1928. Patriotic organizations denounced... 
Who was that? <laughs> well, it wasn't the John Birch Society because they didn't exist at the time. That's true. But, you know, there were any number of radical right-wing organizations at the time. Denounced the chase as an international offense. Chase was called a disgrace to America. They will go to any lengths for a few dollars profits. Again, this is just... It's capitalism that you yeah. have a problem yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. It is so, capitalism that you have a problem with. Sorry to tell sorry to this man. <laughs> congressman Louis McFadden, chairman of the House Banking Committee, maintained in a speech to his fellow congressman, quote, The Soviet government has been given United States Treasury funds by the Federal Reserve Board and the Federal Reserve Banks, acting through the Chase Bank and the Guaranteed Trust Company and other banks in New York. Open up the books of Amtorg, the trading organization of the Soviet government in New York, and of Gostorg, the general office of the Soviet trade organization, and of the State Bank of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, and you will be staggered to see how much American money has been taken from the United States Treasury for the benefit of Russia. Okay. Find out what business has been transacted for the State Bank of Soviet Russia by its correspondent, the Chase Bank of New York. Okay. Benedict. <laughs> well, you know how often we run across something that is in the congressional record. Yeah, that's put there some, by a crazy person because they someone decided Someone citing it. the congressional record as though it gives some sort of imprimatur to whatever nonsense has been spewed there. We yeah. have also watched people like Marjorie Taylor Greene say crazy things yeah, that are then she recorded read into, memes the into the congressional record. <laughs> you know what I did earlier today? I was like, Man, it's been uh, a couple weeks now. Um, I could go back and look up that actual paragraph in the congressional record and see if they wrote it out verbatim or if they were more, if they were kinder to her and maybe paraphrased in a way that actually made sense. And no, no, it's verbatim with all of her terrible grammar and starting right. and stopping and everything. It's just there. So uh, whenever somebody says something is in the congressional record, which is what he cites to here, um, I don't really care that it's you in the congressional to, You should record. have to tell us who put it there. He did. It was Congressman Louis McFadden, who, Benedict, you should be not surprised, is a crazy person. Uh -huh. But he continues, quote, but the Rockefellers apparently were not alone in financing the communist arm of the insiders conspiracy. According to Professor Sutton, and this is a weird thing. He has a quotation mark and then a dot, dot, dot immediately following the quotation mark. Yeah. You don't need to do that. You can no, just start. Start the quotation start. mark. There is a report in the State Department files that names Kuhn, Loeb & Co., the long-established and important financial house in New York, also important to mention, it's you know owned by a Jewish family, and that's why these people hate it so much, as the financier of the first five-year plan. See U.S. State Department decimal file, blah, 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 blah. Um, that's just some bullshit. I looked up this Professor Sutton guy he keeps citing throughout this chapter, and everyone is pretty much like, yeah, yeah, th that dude's fucking crazy. Okay. <laughs> that dude's fucking nuts. He continues, quote, Professor Sutton proves conclusively proves. in his three-volume history of Soviet technological development that the Soviet Union was almost literally manufactured by the USA. Sutton quotes a report by Avril Harriman to the State Department in June 1944 as stating, quote, Stalin paid tribute to the assistance rendered by the United States to Soviet industry before and during the war. He said that about two-thirds of all the large industrial enterprise in the Soviet Union had been built with United States help or technical assistance. Why do you Benedict? think that is? Yes. Why do we Why think do that is? Why do you think in 1944, Stalin is praising the assistance given by the United States before and during the war? <laughs> yeah. Which war might that be? 
<laughs> the one where we're uh, allies against the fucking Nazis? Yeah. Well, but, well were, were these guys allied against the Nazis? Well, I'm not so sure. Because it always goes back to that thing. When you look, you know, time and time again, the right is willing to align with fascism if it means they think they'll be better able to defeat communism or whatever they define as communism, right? That's why you get, you know, people... That's, oh, that's why Nazism happened. That's <laughs> literally, why you get literally. Trump saying there were good people on both sides of Unite the Right, right? Yeah. That's, it's because he looked at the enemies of who those people were, which it was BLM and, you know, generally Antifa, Right? People Whatever who didn't that, like people who were against the statue of generally. Yeah. Well, even beyond that, Unite the Right was organized by explicitly white supremacist and neo-Nazi organizations. Yeah. Right, Matthew Heinbach's Traditionalist Worker Party, uh, the Nationalist Front was the name of the the over umbrella group they put together. Um, the National Alliance, right, the uh, League of the South. These are all explicitly white supremacist organizations. Some of them used swastikas as their symbol. Mm -hmm. Right. These these are not nobody can confuse these for being non white supremacist no. organizations. But because of who their enemy was, the right is willing to say, well, we support their free speech. And really, those Antifa people, they were so did you see them that day? They were so mean and they were spitting and they brought rocks to hit the Nazis with. And I just think that Nazis. I think you need to stop doing too. this. It's not a fun bit. Just give it up. It's not. It's not a Abandon very fun it. bit. It's Abandon not a very it. fun bit because it's rough to think about how that's the reality of our world, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <sighs> but he continues, Benedict, skipping down a ways. On October 7th, 1966, President Lyndon Johnson, a man who had appointed a CFR member to virtually every strategic position in his administration, stated, quote, we intend to press for legislative authority to negotiate trade agreements which could extend most favored nation tariff treatment to European communist states. We, dot, 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 I should mention at the end of that, we will reduce export controls on the east-west trade with respect to hundreds of non-strategic items. And Benedict, he includes a list of those non-strategic items. And they are among those categories. Mm -hmm. He lists, quote, vegetables, cereals, fodder, hides, crude and manufactured rubber, pulp and waste paper, textiles and textile fibers, crude fertilizers, metal ores and scrap, petroleum, gas and derivatives, chemical compounds and products, dyes, medicines, fireworks, detergents, plastic materials, medical, metal products and machinery, and scientific and professional instruments. Mm. About which our dear authors tell us, quote, Virtually every one of these non-strategic items has a direct or indirect use in war. Yeah, in the set, like everything, <laughs> all of that is needed to survive and do shit like that. Yes, Benedict. Vegetables have <laughs> an indirect use in war. <laughs> yeah, they do. That's not wrong, but it's, it's always just a case of like, okay. People in the U.S. or the U.S. itself, in this case, right, the government, sees an opportunity to make money off of communist countries. And they're like, okay, let's sell them some veggies and some textiles yeah. and textile fibers. <laughs> like, what the fuck, Why man? Not? Why not? Skipping down, he says, quote, Not surprisingly, the Rockefellers have been leading and championing this bloody trade. On January 16th, 1967, one of the most incredible articles ever to appear in a newspaper graced the front page of the establishment's daily 
New York Times. Under the headline, Eaton joins Rockefellers to spur trade with Reds. Not like Man Walks on Moon or no. JFK Killed or like Benedict. both of which happened in this decade. Uh, Benedict, I will remind you, one of the most incredible articles ever to appear in a newspaper. Okay. One of the most incredible. Benedict... You know I looked up this article, right? You, I mean, you, you know yeah. how I work. No, I Obviously, know. I looked it up. Um, yeah, it, it was, it was really, it wasn't on the first page. Actually, that's oh, really? the, the first thing that surprised me, it was not on, it was not on a one. It was on page one of a different section of the newspaper, but it was not on a one. Um, and it's just a boring article about how they're they're opening up trade uh, with communist countries and they're you know working on building economic bridges. Sure. It's really actually kind of fucking boring, and there's nothing yep. incredible about it whatsoever. <sighs> but yeah, he starts talking about uh, all these organizations that are the, the the Rockefellers, and it was more like a joint thing with a bunch of different groups. The Rockefellers mm-hmm. were involved, but you know, Eaton, the Rockefellers, and there was also you know several banks involved because they were trading this uh, economic corporation, IBEC, the International Basic Economy Corporation, yep. uh, which was this trading body. Uh, trading company thing, um, and there were a bunch of people involved, uh, Richard Aldrich and uh, some of the Rockefellers and N.M. Rothschild. And I did note at this point in my book that if this book was written today, it would have the uh, anti-Semitic triple parentheses in it. I am a thousand percent sure. Also, thousand percent. I, sure. I don't know what they think this is, but like this is the story of capitalism slowly yeah. winning. Yes, like, <laughs> like one of the. If we have to talk about it, like. Nixon. Everyone remembers Nixon for Watergate. And remember, this book was written in 1971, before yeah. Watergate. So we don't even get that in this book. But, right, uh, one of the people, if you talk about Nixon in political science or thing, you always talk about, well, it was, opening you know, up China, great right? move, like, opening up to China. And, like, you know, bringing Coca-Cola, you know, all that sort of stuff. Because it's like, yeah, then you put China and Russia uh, psychologically against each other and all this stuff that everyone talks about and doesn't really matter to us right now. But... You know, this is what the John Birchers were freaking out about, which with, again, 50 years of hindsight, we're just like, yeah, that was not that big a deal, dude. <laughs> yeah, that's how that's how capitalism won. You should be happy. Like, I know, I know, but, but they just don't see it that way because they're so caught up in you have to oppose communism always. 100% everything you've got or else. So he continues, quote, among the non-strategic items which the Rockefeller Eaton Axis is going to build for the communists are 10 rubber goods plants, including two synthetic rubber plants worth $200 million. Mr. Eaton explains in the Times article, these people are setting up new automobile plants and know that they have got to have tire factories. Under the Nixon administration, which contrary to campaign promises, multiplies trade with the Reds tenfold, American concerns are building the world's largest truck factory for the what was communists. the what was the campaign promise? I promise not to open up trades with the red tenfold. Like I didn't bother to look into like what Nixon said on the campaign trail, but he probably was you know pretty stridently anti-communist rah 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 on the campaign trail. Yeah. If I had to guess, you know. But he continues: trucks are necessary for a nation's war machine. And truck factories can be converted to the production of tanks, as was done during World War II. The U.S. will provide the Soviets with both the facilities to build the trucks and the tires, or tank treads in parenthetical, for them to roll on. This is very silly. 
In addition, the Rockefellers and Eatons are constructing a $50 million aluminum-producing plant for the Reds. Aluminum for jet planes must be considered... I, I, that's, I, that's my... I shouldn't no, it is ha- No, it's sarcastic. I'm being sarcastic, but I... No, no, but he's I, reading it. That's a sarcastic sentence. Well, the, the true sentence is aluminum for jet planes is considered non-strategic. My, I changed the wording there because it was funnier in my mind, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to misrepresent what is actually written on, this, on the page. Um, but it's considered non-strategic under the Johnson-Nixon doctrine. So, yeah, they're building a couple factories, and as he correctly points out, yes, in wartime, factories get converted to building war yeah. stuff. But he never bothers to mention that we were not at war with that Russia is, at that the time. That is not technically incorrect. <laughs> well done. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah he, is, he is technically correct there. So on the next page, Bennett, we finally get some pictures. Oh, pictures. In this. Oh, it's Khrushchev. But, but as usual, the pictures don't matter. Like, okay, yes, you gave us a picture of Khrushchev. You gave us a, a picture of Cyrus Eaton, the industrialist, and a picture of Rockefeller. And it's just a whole lot of... Okay. Yeah. We didn't need the visual aids, right? There's no point to those visual aids there. Okay. Yeah, well, the the descriptions he always gives these people are crazy, right? He calls Nikita Khrushchev the infamous butcher of Budapest. I have never heard him called that. I did manage to find him called that in a couple of places, but I think it referred to, like, how he did in war or something. Or like how he was in World War One, how he fought, or something no, that, like that. Or okay, World War II, it, I it was uh, it was Yuri Andropov as the butcher of Budapest. Who, okay, then it's just that I who convinced yeah. Khrushchev that military intervention was necessary. Well, I guess they have now. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. But yeah, none of those. It, it's just weird. He always does this, and also not to mention he hasn't talked about Khrushchev yet. He's going to now. We're going to get to him finally, but this is actually the closest he's gotten in this book to pictures of be people being in the place, you know, in it's the right. text. It's in the right place. Relatively close to where he's going to be talking yeah. about them. Really the first time he's managed to do that. Usually it's like he puts them in the chapter before he talks about yeah. them. Yeah. It's, it's been strange. But he continues, quote, Thus, by the purchase of patents, because what he's talked about, I sort of skipped over a couple paragraphs, is the, the Rockefellers... Um, or this organization set up to purchase patents mm-hmm. by the Soviets. Weird thing, doesn't matter. Thus, by the purchase of patents for the communists, the Rockefellers are virtually in charge of research and development for the Soviet military machine, allowing the Soviets to mass-produce American developments. Which, you hear a lot of this complaint today about China and other countries stealing American patents. You I don't mean, so much hear complaints about them buying American yeah. patents like we're getting in this book. Yeah, that's true. No, I mean, and China does do that, to be fair. They do steal it. Yeah, China boxes. does, and to be fair, Great Britain does, and to yeah, be fair, Italy do it. does, Everyone and to be fair, it. Israel does, and to be fair, you know, every country is, you know, con- uh, companies within those countries and the countries themselves are engaging in industrial espionage to steal trade that's secrets. True. They all are, all the time. He continues, quote, Since the Rockefellers have contracted to arrange for patents for the Soviets, they are by dictionary definition communist (laughs) agents. That's like that one you did the other day it's, where it's like another, yeah. dog, dogs are mortal. I am yes, mortal, yes. therefore I am a dog. Like, it's but you know what, Benedict? I do have to give him the benefit here. If you just look at the basic rules of agency law, what right. is an agent? It is a person agreeing to contract business on behalf of someone else. Sure. Yes, 
technically they are communist agents. But no, That's that is not, not what, what anyone means, means when no. they say communist agents. No, no. Okay. All right. <laughs> he then follows that with, would it not be more accurate to define the communists as Rockefeller agents? No. Which, it no, would not. no. The communists are the principal in this equation. That's what it is. Principal and agent. Oh, God. I love it when this stuff happens. I, I really love it when this stuff I happens. Hate it. But he follows this with pr- probably my favorite paragraph of the chapter. Quote, Indicative of this was a strange event which occurred in October of 1964. David Rockefeller, president of the Chase Manhattan Bank and chairman of the board of the Council on Foreign Relations, took a vacation in the Soviet Union. This is a peculiar place for the world's greatest imperialist, I think he meant industrialist, I don't know yeah. why imperialist would be the right word there. To take his vacation, since much of communist propaganda deals with taking all of David's wealth away from him and distributing it to the people. Okay. A few days after Rockefeller ended his vacation in the Kremlin, Nikita Khrushchev was recalled from a vacation at the Black Sea Resort to learn that he had been fired. How strange! As far as the world knew, Khrushchev was the absolute dictator of the Soviet government and, more importantly, head of the Communist Party, which runs the USSR. Who has the power to fire the man who was supposedly the, party, the absolute very dictator? Famously. Well, I I put in the margins of my book, um, dot, 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 Brezhnev? Yeah. Who organized that coup? Yep. Yep, <laughs> so, yep. That's true. Brezhnev was a big part of that. That's that's who did it. Um, who has the power to fire the man who was supposedly the absolute dictator? Did David Rockefeller journey to the Soviet Union to fire an employee? No. Uh, Obviously, the position of premier in the Soviet Union is a figurehead with the true power residing elsewhere, perhaps in New York. Sure. I just, that's my favorite paragraph of the whole book, probably, because, okay, at the time, 1970, maybe they didn't know about the inner goings on of how Khrushchev was removed as head of the USSR. Maybe they didn't know. I didn't bother to look up, like, when that information came out. But we do know now very much who was behind that whole thing and how it happened. And, yeah, it was Brezhnev and a bunch of his close allies. Yeah. Um, can I Can I share two quick things about Khrushchev? Yes. yes. Um, because of that, I forget the name of the movie, but it's the movie where Steve Buscemi played Khrushchev. And now I can't uh, the think... The Death of Stalin? The yes. Death of Stalin, yeah, yeah. So now whenever I think of Khrushchev, all I can think of is Steve Buscemi. And um, <laughs> secondly, there's a... I think I've told this story before, but I will never not tell this story. There was a time when uh, when Khrushchev visited China and Mao was in charge. And Mao would hold meetings in the pool because Khrushchev couldn't oh God, swim. You've, to- you've told me. You've told me this one before. <laughs> Khrushchev couldn't swim, so he would just swim laps around yep. Khrushchev. <laughs> God, that had to be embarrassing. That, that's that sort of bullshit power move yeah. that only people who have so much more power than they actually deserve pull off. That's, you know, people like like Trump who do that yeah, bullshit yeah. handshake pull thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. God, I forgot That's just what that, that annoying stuff is. Anyways, he continues skipping down a little ways. Quote, while David runs the financial end of the Rockefeller dynasty, Nelson runs the political Mm. Nelson would like to be president of the United States, but unfortunately for him, he is unacceptable to the vast majority of the grassroots of his own party, which, I mean, fair. Yeah, he lost a primary to Barry Goldwater because, I mean, he, he says it in this book, and it is, like, to be fair, it is sort of true. Nelson represented the quote-unquote liberal wing of the mm-hmm. Republican Party in the 1960s, right? 
Uh, he was generally against segregation and whatnot. So, yeah, he did represent the liberal-ish wing of the party, but um, it's not at all all this you know conspiracy bullshit that they're writing about here. Skipping down, he says, quote, You'll recall that right in the middle of drawing up the Republican platform in 1960, Mr. Nixon suddenly left Chicago and flew to New York to meet with Nelson Rockefeller in what Barry Goldwater described as the Munich of the Republican Party. In what there sense? was n- <laughs> I don't know. I couldn't figure out what he meant there because the Munich Olympic thing hadn't happened yet. That was the first thing. That's the first thing that always pops into my mind when no. anyone says Munich. Um I do, I just I couldn't imagine. Was there was, a, there was probably a meeting there or something there was some kind of treaty. Maybe maybe Munich does Munich have a reputation as like a a you know uh uh bah. What's the song from Rent that I'm thinking of? I don't know. Bohemian? Yes, Bohemian. That's exactly uh, You knew exactly what probably. I was talking about. Probably, probably. <laughs> um I think I think that's where it's going. Maybe something along those lines. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you recognized mm-hmm. what I was going for there. Um continuing. La vie bohème is the uh, Yes, la vie bohème. Yes. Yeah. Uh continuing. There was no political reason why Mr. Nixon needed to crawl to Mr. Rockefeller. He had the convention all sewed up. The Chicago Tribune cracked that it was like Grant surrendering to Lee. That's a bad quip. It's not true at all. It's a bad quip. Uh, Of course, it bears noting that Nelson was the governor of the most powerful state in the country and, you know, one of the most Presumably in Nixon the needed to win. <laughs> Presumably. And also, he's a very he's a very powerful guy. It's worth noting that, you know, his wealth probably did have something to do with his influence on the Republican Party. Wealth has always had an impact on people's influence in politics. Like, but just he's he's wrapped that that little grain of truth into his massive communist conspiracy that's going on here. So Nixon did not win New York. Just that no, way. No, no, no. <laughs> Uh, he continues, quote, Both the Texas, meeting, funnily enough. Yeah. The meeting produced the infamous Compact of Fifth Avenue, in which the Republican platform was scrapped and replaced by Rockefeller's socialist plans. Okay. The Wall Street Journal I- of July 25th, 1960 commented, quote, and again, he begins this quote with an ellipsis. Yeah, with- Weird. A little band of conservatives within the party, dot, 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 are shoved to the sidelines, dot, dot, dot. The 14 points are very liberal indeed. Come on. Yeah. You can't Nixon. honestly present Nixon that. Nixon, the famous liberal. What the fuck is that? That is the worst quoting of my life. But look, again, to be fair, uh, Nelson Ross, I, I did look that up again, and they do call that like the agreement on Fifth Avenue or the Fifth Avenue, you know, various formations of that sort of phrasing. Um, and part of what came out of it was uh, Nelson pressured Nixon to put into the Republican Party platform um, a call to remove all segregation, which, given what we know about the John Birch Society, might be the socialist part that he's complaining about there. Mm-hmm. You know, we've done plenty of looking into the John Birch Society, and god damn it, so many of these people are pro-segregation. So many times. So often. So, continuing on, there's not a lot that's interesting. It's just complaining about how that uh, convention went, and how the platform changed, and uh, Nixon never should have given in to all that. And, so, you know, Nixon, he was, he was poor when he left as vice president. And mm-hmm. somehow... You know, got a job at a big law firm run by John Mitchell, he was who a ended up being his attorney general at a time. He was yeah. a lawyer, of course, and somehow he ended up getting a lot of money off the back of having been vice president of the United States. Funny that. <laughs> Funny how that works from time to time. Yeah. And then he continues, quote, 
The man most observers agree is the most powerful man in the administration on domestic policy matters is Attorney General John Mitchell. Mm. And Benedict, this is where we get to the point where it's so much fun that this book was written in 1971. Because John Mitchell, you may recall, is a convicted criminal for his activities during the Watergate affair. I mean, that is not wrong (laughs) that he was the most uh, influential person on domestic policy matters. Sure. That played out. That is predictive. Just knowing how all this... And, like, the most fun thing about Mitchell, which I don't think ever come up enough, and I don't think anybody talks about to the extent that I would like it to be talked about is the whole situation of what happened with his wife, Martha Mitchell. Uh, I don't know if you know the stories at all, but Martha Mitchell um, basically had a big hand in breaking the Watergate story and, you know, contributing to it going on going forward because uh, she was good friends with a number of reporters around Uh, DC, obviously. And she was on the phone with legendary and now dearly departed uh, DC reporter, Helen Thomas. John Mitchell literally pulled the phone cord out of the wall when he found out that she was on the phone with Helen Mitchell. And then they kidnapped her. They kidnapped, like, John Mitchell and a bunch of other people from Creep, the city council to reelect the president, committee to reelect the president, kidnapped Uh his wife and took her to a motel and had a psychiatrist inject her with drugs to keep her from talking to reporters. Yeah, this is. I mean, and he didn't even get convicted for that. He got convicted for his other obstruction of justice during the Watergate Ooh. investigation. God, I just love these people. You gotta at least, at least graft and corruption and obstruction of justice had panache in Nixon's yeah. time. Unlike now, it used to have some damn. Well, because you used to have panache. You used to have to have panache. Yes. Yes, now, now they just feel like, oh, yeah, we found you. Uh, and you're like, ah, oh, you got me again. You can just be a pasty fail son like Stephen Miller and somehow yeah. make it to those heights. So he continues, quote, Richard Nixon was elected president on a platform which promised to stop America's retreat before world communism. Yet he appointed Henry Kissinger, a man who represented the opposite of the stands Mr. Nixon took during his campaign. Yes, Benedict, he is calling Kissinger weak on communism. Mm. Yeah, yeah, the guy who extended the Vietnam War for no reason. Yeah, cool. Love that. I just love that so much. He appointed Kissinger during his campaign to a position which is virtually assistant president. Is it surprising then that That's Mr. true, to be fair. Well, I mean, Kissinger did have a lot of influence. We all Kissinger know that, Kissinger basically right? ran the country for a How time. is that motherfucker still alive? I Jesus know, it's Christ. crazy. <laughs> he was talking about fucking Bitcoin the other day. <laughs> who wanted, who would think it's worthwhile to listen to Kissinger talk about Bitcoin? Who Great in question. their right goddamn mind? Jesus Christ. Uh, I got to keep reading this. Um, Is it surprising then that Mr. Nixon has done just the opposite of what he promised he would do during his 1968 campaign? How did Mr. Nixon come to pick an ultra-liberal to be his number one foreign policy? Yes, Kissinger is an (laughs) ultra-liberal. Sure. And then he gives a little story about how apparently this happened and they met at a cocktail party, blah, blah, blah. And apparently he liked Kissinger so much at the party, he appointed him. That's an oversimplification of what happened. Like, they obviously talked after that and he found out about the guy. But he continues, quote, Mr. Nixon would have to be stupid to have done that. And Mr. Nixon is not stupid. Au contraire. 
au contraire. That's all I'm going to say. The Kissinger appointment was arranged by Nelson Rockefeller, and then there is a citation oh. to Salt Lake City Desert News from March 27, 1970, and I think that's Desiree News. It is, which, yeah. yeah. I think, but he just thought it was, he thought it was Desert News. He was like, that's not how you spell desert. I'll correct it. <laughs> He had that. You know what? I will guarantee you. He thought he was correcting the citation. Yep. <laughs> but yep, that's his citation for um, Kissinger's appointment was arranged by Rockefeller. Desert News. Yep. March twenty seventh, nineteen. Heard it from a cactus. <laughs> so I look the the last. There's a couple of individual uh, blurbs to end the chapter. Yeah, I don't want to read those. No, no. So uh, I will just read here. Um, the, the, the last one, I guess, uh, which is he, he starts off with a um, saying, quote, Mr. Nixon's fantastic about face was praised by LBJ in the Washington Star of December 1st, 1971. The paper states, I'm just actually I'm just going to read the whole thing. Former President Lyndon B. Johnson acknowledges that Richard Nixon, as a Republican president, has been able to accomplish some things that a Democratic president could not have, dot, dot, dot. Can't you just see the uproar, he asked during a recent interview, if I had been responsible for Taiwan getting kicked out of the United Nations, or if I had imposed sweeping national controls on prices and wages, Nixon has gotten away with it, he observed, an appreciative tone in his voice. If I had tried to do it, or Truman, or Humphrey, or any Democrat, we would have been clobbered. And that's the end. Probably true, but... The end of chapter six. And, Benedict, the next chapter, chapter seven, this is one... Just the title of this chapter alone, listeners to our show and you and I know what's going to happen in this next chapter because it is titled Pressure from Above and Pressure from Below. Where have we heard that a bunch of times? Yes, absolutely. And of course, we know Glenn Beck, huge fan of the John Birch Society. I have no doubt he has read this book, he has read W. Cleon Skousen's book. definitely read this book. Yes, I, I have no doubt that when he lied about finding that secret document in the congressional record, he pulled it from this his buddies at the John Birch Society. Yeah. So, Benedict, we made it through another chapter. We only have a couple more to go. I think there are three more chapters in this book, maybe. Maybe sure. maybe two or three. I don't know. Uh, but, look, I love this thing. I, I, I love this book so much. It is just so much fun. I'm excited to keep on through it. Two more to go. And I think when we're done with this for the patron only, we're going to do another patron only book review because I really like doing these patron only book reviews this way. And I think one that we've we stepped into in the past, but have never gotten all the way into and have not certainly done, uh, I think, in, a, uh, in the right way is The Conscience of a Conservative by mm-hmm. Gary, Barry Goldwater, although actually by uh, William F. Buckley's fascist stepbrother or brother-in-law. Mm-hmm. Right. So that'll be fun to get into. I'm so glad that we were able to do this for everybody this week and put this out on the regular feed. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed the show. Um, we don't usually do shout outs to our patrons and on we the patron only bonus episodes. So usually we just this pretend is a patron episode. We just pretend that I forget how to do outros at this point of the show. We go, okay, goodbye. We do that. So I guess thank you all for listening. I don't remember how to do outros. Okay, goodbye. Bye.
About Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast is a production of Kevin and Benedict Productions. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Music for this podcast is by Silverman Sound Studios. Find out more at silvermansound.com.